Uh, what we're going to discuss today is how the, the Port of London was discovered and what we discovered about it. Now, um, if you look at the historical records of Roman London, there's only about 14 actual references to London in antiquity, i.e. contemporary references, and of those, uh, only one is in the first century. Uh, there are none at all in the second or third century. There's only one in the late third century, and there's four in the fourth century. So if you're a historian trying to write a history of, of Roman London, it's very difficult. You don't really have much data. You're going to depend on the archaeological evidence, the material evidence uh, of the port and indeed the town to have any understanding of what happened then. And so what we're looking at here is how did we discover about the port of London? There is no historical documentations, no um, customs books, no tariffs, no idea of the taxes. We have to understand the port entirely from the archaeological evidence. So that's what we're going to do today. So if we move on to the next slide. I love live streaming. So <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we, so our story begins uh, in about 1910, 1911, when um, County Hall was being built. Just before it was built, this fine building here, in the basement of that building, the remains of a Roman ship were discovered, uh, way down in the silt below the basement level. Here you can see it. And here's a plan of said ship. You can see that little cutout there where they drilled a foundation through it. Uh, you can see the sides fallen outwards. Most of the side planking's gone there, but you can see there's a healthy chunk of Roman ship there. So for the first time, um, archaeologically, we had evidence for the port and trade and shipping of Roman London. Uh, but that, that told us that there was a ship, but didn't tell us where the port actually was, where the harbour works were. And the first evidence for that came in the 1930s, when this elegant building was being built. It's now been pulled down, of course. We have a habit of pulling down any nice buildings in London. And uh, when the lift shaft for this building was being dug out by the men in the cloth caps, uh, by hand, uh, they found these very large timbers, these huge oak timbers, which were actually part of the Roman quay. We weren't quite sure what it was at the time, because this is not on the River Thames, it's set back from the Thames. So it seemed a strange place to build a port, a harbour. Then, moving forward to about 1958, when New Guy's Hospital was being built behind Old Guy's Hospital, in a little trench in 1958, a schoolboy called Peter Marsden found a fragment of yet another Roman ship. And you can just see some of the planks for that next to that imperial inch scale ruler. So we're getting little hints of things. And um, then in 1962-63, Peter Marsden had grown up by then. Here he is, uh, in the mud, finding yet another ship, this time at Blackfriars. So if you can imagine all those dots on the map, we're beginning to try and work out where this port might have been. That's what Peter Marsden and his team found. And that's what it looked like. There's an early kind of photograph of what the vessel might have been looked like. Um, 
But then things began to move on a pace, and the 10 years later, in 1973, there were excavations at Custom House, which is just to the east of um, the David Lang Custom House. That's the big classical building. On the site east of that, what was Wall Quay, a major excavation took place in 1973 by the Guildhall Museum, and they found a Roman key, beams recovered after 1,700 years. And that was the first... A controlled excavation of a Roman key site in London, a Roman wharf site, again set well back from the modern River Thames. And then something dramatic started to happen. The entire waterfront of London suddenly came up for redevelopment. And this related directly to the collapse of the 19th century port because of the invention of a metal box, viz. a container. In the good old days, used to store cargoes in warehouses, uh, but the container, so you, you would bring your vessel into the port full of cargo, you would offload it onto a barge, the barge would offload it onto the warehouse, the warehouse would stick it on one of its floors. But these metal containers are weatherproof boxes, they are their own, the cargo comes in its own warehouse. So all the warehouses in the city part of London suddenly were, up, were obsolete and were pulled down dramatically from one end of the waterfront to the other. And this amazingly was the catalyst for the, the collapse of one port, the modern port, was the catalyst for the discovery of the Roman port because suddenly huge sites were opened up uh, from the modern riverfront right the way up to Thames Street. Huge sites were opened up and for the first time for hundreds of years archaeologists were able to excavate on those sites which were very deep very dangerous, and uh, bits of Roman key were found at the bottom. So all the way along the waterfront, uh, um, this, this is an early view of the city of London in about uh, 1970 or something. The line of Thames Street is roughly along the line of this white line, which marks the line of the Roman, Roman riverside wall. And what we've discovered is the Roman key sites are all along that line. They're not next to the Thames, they're actually inland. So the Roman harbour works were actually very well preserved. And a number of sites were excavated all the way along the line of Thames Street, all the way along here, between Blackfriars and the Tower, um, with particular emphasis on the bit in the middle, a bit around... Um, uh, Billingsgate, Pudding Lane, Fish Street Hill, where uh, we found, here's the River Thames, that's that grey thing there, uh, there's London Bridge, that's the modern Thames path, there's Lower Thames Street, full of delightful traffic, impossible to cross, you have to run very fast or you'll die, and then on the other side of Thames Street, underneath those buildings, we found the line of the first century quay, right back there, over 100 metres north of the present-day River Thames. And here on a series of trenches, you can see um, excavations taking place uh, of warehouses, the Roman timber key itself, which we found running all the way along there, a pier base for London Bridge. Uh, the second century key was underneath Thames Street, and the third century advance was to the south of Thames Street. Uh, so you can see that all that land was reclaimed from the river during the course of the Roman period. This gives you some idea of the um, quality of the preservation of those structures. That's the timber key, 
the timber face for the key or the wharf. That's the working surface of the wharf being cleaned with an industrial hoover, so probably cleaner than it had ever been. And that's one bay of a warehouse building with a timber floor uh, with a, a, a masonry walls around the outside. And uh, that's the Museum of London's archaeological team. Now, because the timber wharf was faced with timber and not with marble or stone or anything, we were able to chop it up and count the tree rings and give absolute calendar dates for these structures. So we know that this particular phase is, say, AD 91 or something like that. So we can give you, very, give you absolute dates for when uh, those structures and its successor structures were built. So uh, throughout the 80s, here we have in 1982, here we have another excavation at Bleasgate Lorry Park. Does anybody recognise this gentleman? <laughs> He's got very clean clothes on, very clean boots, as opposed to the archaeologists who look a little scruffier. Nevertheless, he did go to Cambridge and allegedly took a degree in archaeology. <laughs> um, throughout the 80s, we were excavating a number of sites all the way along the waterfront. This one is actually underneath Cannon Street Station. They didn't knock the station down, uh, but they did dig a big hole underneath it. And here you see uh, chunks of Roman timber key being excavated into under not ideal conditions uh, by the museum, uh, right at the junction of the Walbrook stream, where that stream meets, uh, becomes a confluence with the Thames. And then as we move into the era of contract archaeology, our colleagues on the south side of the river were also doing a number of excavations in Southwark, and uh, pre-construct archaeology found a Romano-British temple and they found this wonderful inscription, which is in the gallery of the Museum of London, and it refers to a, a merchant, Martisianus Camelo Tiburnius Celerianus, I wish they'd have shorter names, who was a, a merchant, Moritix, of Londoniensium. Now, he comes from Bouvet, uh, Bouvet in Gaul, so he's a gallo British, a, um, a Romano-British backslash Gallic merchant, i.e. he's trading with Gaul, or France as we now call it, uh, from London, merchant of London. So that's a very important inscription uh, representing uh, an actual named individual who was uh, working with the port. Uh, moving forward to 1996, other major excavations at the old Regis house, finding more evidence for the port, and also three of these huge, heavy lead ingots uh, stamped with the imperial stamp of Vespasian, who was a Roman emperor way back in about 19, uh, uh, AD 17. Um, excavations have continued right the way through into this century. Here you see some uh, sondages being dug at Three, three Keys, which is right at the eastern end of the city waterfront next to the tower. And here you see one at Sugar Key, Wool Key, uh, next to the Custom House, with, again, very well-preserved fragment or not fragments, uh, substantial sections of uh, a second, third century Roman key structure. Human scale up there for you. Uh, this is a very substantial, very well-preserved chunk of the Roman port. So, um, 
for 40 years or so, there have been a number of excavations taking place, each one adding a substantial chunk of jigsaw to the story of the port of Roman London. And if you add that to the story of the town as well, we, we can now say, remember there are no, there's very little documentary evidence for um, Roman London, we can now give a foundation date for the city, an archaeologically attested foundation date of AD 47. Uh, we know it was destroyed in the native uprising, and immediately after the native uprising, in about AD 61, uh, we have evidence for the port being laid out. It was laid out after the uprising in order to regenerate the economy of the uh, shattered country. So the port is actually begins in a formal way immediately after the Badikhan uprising. Uh, then by AD 85, AD 120, as we move into the second century, there's a major expansion of the port and we, we can d demonstrate that the Roman bridge had actually been built by that date. So from a, a shaky start, uh, the port is established and the town is established and then this major expansion in the late, um, late first, early second century. We should point out that dear old Britannia, before the Romans arrived, um, there wasn't a London. It was, London is definitely a Roman foundation. And the River Thames itself, in the good old days of the um, Iron Age tribes, it was actually a boundary, a boundary between the Catawalani, the um, Atrobates down in Hampshire Way, and the Cantiarchy in what we now call Kent, Kent Cantiarchy, a good old Celtic name. So the River Thames for the Iron Age tribes was a boundary which they fought over perpetually. For the Romans, it was a highway, completely different concept, get rid of all these warring bands and uh, develop this as a united province. So a very different approach to the Thames. So London suddenly had a role which it would not have had in the Iron Age. Here's a map of the Greater London area, um, not a strange island, and you can see the River Thames uh, running through the floodplain. Um, the blue bit is the River Thames and the white bit is the floodplain. So you can see that the River Thames you see there is actually a canal. The real river would be much wider than that. And in the Roman period, the river would have often flooded, flood plain equals flood, would have often been that wide rather than that wide. So if you can imagine coming through London in the first century, you'll be faced with a very wide river here, which gradually, gradually gets narrower by the time it gets to where London is today. So there is only one sensible place you could consider building a bridge and having a settlement in the major port, and that's at the tidal head of the much wider Thames, which would be around about there, which amazingly is where the Romans opted to site London, the port and the bridge, or the bridge, the port and London. So uh, here are some of the examples of the excavations of that port at that fortuitous place uh, at the, um, on the tidal Thames, but on the narrowest bridging point. Uh, here you see the timber keywork. There you see the Thames at high tide, as it was in the Roman period. There's the working surface of the quay, and there's one of the bays of these warehouses. That's what the archaeologists found, and this is the model in the Museum of London Gallery. It's based entirely on the archaeological evidence. The only thing we've left off is that um, half-metre scale 
which uh, you've got some humans instead. And these timber keys, as you see, were very extensive. They ran for miles and miles and miles along the front of, the, of um, Londinium, and the River Thames lapped right up against it. And by putting absolute levels on these structures and filling the, the excavation trench with water, we can tell you exactly how high the River Thames was in the first century AD. It was that high. Or actually, it could go slightly higher. So we know precisely the exact date at which the Thames was that high, which is about three metres lower than the Thames is today. Um, we also found something called London Bridge on the 11th of November 1981, uh, which uh, created a slight media frenzy. Uh, there's our trusty half-metre scale. This is the Roman quay itself, which I'm on the land looking toward the river. There's the Roman quay, which suddenly stops. There's an inlet, and that inlet is blocked by this ancient timber structure just to the south of the corner of that quay. Uh, there you see, looking from the inside, that's the Roman quay, and in front of it is a very large structure built in the open river, being cleaned by Josie. So what structure would you have in the river south of the quay? What, uh, what else could it be but a bridge? So, or a pier to support the bridge. There you see the warehouse, the Roman quay with its return, and then blocking that return, we see a pier base um, built over what was initially the ferry point. We see this seven-metre-wide, seven-metre square uh, timber pier base supporting uh, a bridge. That's all we found of it, but that's what made world headlines a few bits of old wood. <laughs> Amazing, really. Um, and so what we have is a pier base f to support the decking for uh, that um, Roman bridge itself, right next to these warehousing and the Roman quays. Um, the bridge itself, or the road from the bridge, runs directly from the quayside right up to the front of the Forum and Basilica, the great town hall. So the, the town hall, in other words, is founded directly over the bridgehead approach road. And there's the town hall Forum Basilica in AD 70. And here it is in AD 120, much enlarged. And we've had a look at the alignment of the bridge. And initially, it was thought it would run from north from the north bank to the south bank along that alignment there, but um, we're now decided it actually moves slightly, not on the line of the medieval bridge, but slightly to one side because of that little point there. Now that little point there is an even earlier um, study going back to the 1830s when the medieval bridge was being dredged and removed and replaced by the modern London Bridge, or rather the, the Rennie London Bridge. And when that dredging was taking place, right in the middle of the river, a large cache of Roman coins were found. These were almost certainly coins thrown as a votive offering into the Thames from a shrine in the middle of the old bridge. So we found where the northern bridge abutment is. We found where the middle of the bridge was by the coin hoard in the middle of the Thames, and we found where the other end of the bridge was by the way that two roads converge in Southwark. So that gives us one bridgehead 
The archaeologists have found the northern bridgehead and Charles Roach Smith in 1830 found the midpoint of the bridge. And amazingly, it is exactly the midpoint of the bridge. So we have a shrine in the middle of the bridge with people throwing coins into the river. So um, there you go for uh, safe journeys and such like. And once the bridge was built, this kick-started the economy of London. And uh, so much so that the Forum of Basilica was doubled in size. So we had this huge, great second century Forum of Basilica. And this is the road that leads down to the bridge. And not only did London expand with this huge Forum of Basilica, but there, were, there was more development in the port. They confluenced the River Walbrook and the River Fleet. And also on the south bank, on the island as it was there of Southwark, on the south bank. Uh, the Walbrook, you may remember from the recent work on the Temple of Mithras site, here you see archaeologists in the Walbrook Valley, now in field of course, uh, thick waterlogged deposits um, with uh, plenty of surviving timber work there, and um, in which not only wood survives, timber survives in the Walbrook Valley, in the middle of the city, but also writing tablets as well. And um, this, we know, in the uh, late 1st, early 2nd century, was a great industrial zone. There were glass workers working there, uh, pottery production, leather workers, ironsmithy, shoemakers. It was a hive of industry using that water channel uh, for um, their industrial purposes. And also at the mouth of the Walbrook and the River Fleet, there was a Roman tidal mill, and there was another one, uh, so on the, both on the Walbrook and on the River Fleet, using the uh, tidal waters to power the mills. Uh, and on the south bank also the port fostered more um, ironworking, metalworking on the south bank at Southwark where there was an enormous amount of uh, structured uh, industrialised complex as it were, uh, including a couple of warehouses, uh, one of which you can see here under excavation, uh, with instead of having a proper doorway, there's a little ramp that goes down into the warehouse where you can roll barrels up and down. So it wasn't just the north part of the city, but all the way along the waterfront and even onto the southern shore uh, was combined to provide the prosperity for this burgeoning port. And one of the main drivers uh, behind uh, London's development was uh, an entity called the Classis Britannica, which is the Roman fleet uh, responsible for, uh, initially, troop transport. It brought the troops over from Gaul to London in the initial invasion, uh, to Britain in the initial invasion. It also uh, brought the um, imperial mail, from Europe, before mobile phones, from Europe to London, uh, to, to Britain. Uh, but it also did more than that. In the Mediterranean, we have a long history of merchant shipping. So there's lots of ships and uh, lots of trade routes and lots of merchants and mercantile infrastructure. In Britannia, a strange island right off the north coast of civilised Europe, uh, we didn't have any of that. So the Classis Britannica also served as a merchant marine as well as a, a, a naval force and it uh, provided 
uh, the skills of shipbuilding, you know, we were just building coracles at the time, uh, shipbuilding, harbour construction, and also things like stone quarrying, bricks, and an iron industry, uh, uh, some of those elements of which we did not have before the Romans arrived. So they were responsible for providing the nautical muscle to ensure that traffic and trade uh, was um, fostered and developed in this far-flung province. Little bits of the classes Britannica still survive. This is the Pharos, the lighthouse at Dover, which still survives, uh, where the... Um, you must remember that umbilical cord between Britannia and Gaul was crucial. It's the only way we could connect with this huge empire is via a shuttle service of ferries going from Dover to Gaul, from Gaul to Dover. And that was operated by the Classis Britannica. Now, the Classis Britannica fort at Dover is dated to about uh, 120 to 200. That's when it operates. And in London, we also have a little fort, the same shape as the Classis Britannica fort at Dover, which also runs from about 120 to 200. So I do wonder if the Cripplegate fort, literally just outside the museum's door, uh, was actually related to the organisation of the Classis Britannica. Um, so here we have the great harbour, the great um, timber works, um, a writing tablet representing the sale of a slave girl for 300 denarii, um, huge quantities of Roman pottery coming in to Romanise the good people of Britannia, and a headless merchant uh, who's making a libation to the gods, thanking them for the um, success, the cornucopia that he had with his ships that brought in all his, um, his prosperity. So London, by the middle of the first century, the middle of the second century, was highly successful. And that's how we tend to think of the port of Roman London. If you look in the Roman gallery uh, upstairs, uh, you'll see maps of the Roman world and items which have arrived in London from all over the Roman world. It's extraordinary to think that in the second century you could go to any town in the Roman Empire, speak the same language, have the same coinage, and drink food, eat and drink food from the same types of vessels. It was a unified sort of global complex in the, uh, that, that, the Roman period extraordinary achievement. And this is how we tend to think of the port of Roman London in its heyday in the um, first and second century. However, it all went horribly wrong. You'll be thrilled to know. Um, by AD 200, instead of, uh, we decided we needed, instead of large forums and basilicas, we needed a defensive wall. And from that point onwards, the settlement begins to contract a lot of public buildings, like the Forum Basilica, were actually demolished, and the harbour works were eventually dismantled. So suddenly, we don't need a port. And by 300, by about 270, 300, we'd built a riverside wall right the way along the waterfront, and we did, did, uh, strengthened our defences in AD 350, and by AD 450, we abandoned the entire settlement. So the first part of the rain period, trajectories upwards, the second part is very much decline and fall. Here you see the landward wall put up in about AD 200, running right the way around the landward side of the um, uh, complex, 
Um, and by the third century, the riverside was also had a, a defensive wall built up. There you see a, a drawing of it. There you see the excavation of it in a cold January day. But did we feel the cold? No. We whistled and sang as we worked. And here you see part of that riverside wall from that site at Baynard's Castle. Um, there's the foundations, the timber foundations, driven into the um, Thames foreshore with a huge chalk raft on top of it, and then the Roman riverside wall built on top of it. But then here you see the erosion levels of later uh, late Roman or early medieval silts eating up into the wall, causing the wall to collapse. Which is why you don't have a riverside wall in London, but you do have fragments of the landward wall still surviving. There was a riverside wall, but it got washed away by the Thames. So in late Roman London, actually looked like this. There's the River Thames, um, and there's this massive wall dividing the river and the wharf from the warehouses. So how do you offload tons of amphorae and great bales of this and that into the warehouses if there's a huge riverside wall there? It sort of demonstrates that the port is no more. Defence is far more important uh, than the uh, port function. And uh, so during the late Roman period, therefore, we see the dismantling of the quays. Here you see uh, this wonderful section. Here's the first century Roman warehouse and quay. There's Thames Street, that's south of Thames Street, and that's the modern river wall, and there's the river, the present-day River Thames. So in the first century, we had this nice warehouse and quay built. In the second century, we move it ever further forward, southwards, and by the third century, we've got south of Thames Street. But then look at this, it's all dismantled and falling apart and silting up by AD 300 or so. And there you see part of the dismantled Roman quay as it was in the um, uh, late 3rd, early 4th century. Whoops, let's go the other way. So the port was being dismantled and indeed the whole town was contracting. Why should this be, I hear you say? Why should this be, I hear you say? And um, there are all sorts of reasons. There's a, a, a political administrative reason in that in AD 200, in AD 100, uh, Londinium seemed to run the whole show, the whole of the province, at least not the Scottish bit, obviously, because we never managed to tame them, them our Scots. But um, we managed to tame Yorkshire, which is quite an achievement. And uh, here you see, but by AD 200, Britain was divided into two. So London was only responsible for Britain superior, as they called it, and York was responsible for Britain inferior. Inferior is a geographical term, not a quality of judgment. Now, by AD 300, the province was subdivided again to make it easier to manage into all these separate provinces. And London had its administrative remit was ever smaller. So London's importance got smaller and smaller for political and administrative reasons. Uh, so that's one of the reasons it all failed. Uh, another reason is the river itself. In the first century, the River Thames uh, was a wide, unembanked river with marshes and islands on both banks. And what you can see here is a, a snapshot of um, the area between uh, of Southwark on the south bank and Londinium on the north bank. That's the forum at the top with a road leading down to the bridge and crossing the river. Now, at high tide, 
There's only a 1.5 meter tidal range in the Roman period, much lower than today. At high tide, the river is extremely wide here, but at low tide, all these mudflats and islands appear on the south bank. So if you're going to build a bridge, you have to build it where the islands are in your favour, where the river is at its narrowest, and that is where Southwark is, uh, the, the great island of Southwark itself. So London was positioned in the first century not because of any features on the north bank, but for the features on the south bank. That island dictated where the bridge would be, and that bridge dictated where the Forum and Basilica would be, and the Forum and Basilica dictated where Londinium would be. So it's all dictated by this uh, tidally washed island on the south bank. So you have a tidal range of about 1.5 metres in the first century, but very dramatically we discovered that the tidal range actually drifts in the uh, Roman period. It starts off um, quite, quite deep. In, in the first century, we have 1.5 metres. And as we go through the Roman period, it gets smaller and smaller as the tidal head actually drifts eastwards. So by the time we get to the fourth century, London is no longer at the tidal head of the Thames, which is where you expect a port to be. So the river actually deserts London. We're very used these days for sea levels to be rising, but it so happened as a quirk in the late Roman period, the sea levels dropped, the tidal range dropped, and London was no longer on the tidal head of the Thames. So that's another very good reason why London disappeared. But of course, the biggest reason of all, if you, um, you've got political problems, you've got... Um, uh, in environmental problems, but probably the worst thing was barbarian invasions. Uh, these Angles, Angles, Angles and Saxons came storming over here, and um, by AD 457, uh, the warlike Saxons uh, took over London, and the whole town, not just the port, but the whole town was abandoned, and indeed the whole province collapsed. So we've seen this amazing story of the rise of the port of London from nothing to a major port, and then its gradual collapse as the port, as the town collapses and as the whole province collapses, mirroring uh, somewhat the development of the 19th century port and its disappearance in the 60s and 70s. So that's the remarkable story built up by archaeological research, not by documentary evidence, of the port of London. So you could say that for the province and the port, Britannia's Brexit from the Roman Empire did not go well. <laughs> what did someone say about the lessons that history teaches? I can't remember. Anyway, thank you very much indeed.